It is great to be able to worship with you, and it is good to have uh, everybody back up here on the stage with us. Those who filled in last week did a fantastic job, but it is always nice to have the choir up here leading us as well, and such a blessing to be able to do that with you. Uh, We've had a couple different announcements that have been given this morning, and uh, they're all very important announcements, but I do just want to mention uh, the, the announcement for Celebrate Recovery. I know it seems like it's four months away, so it's not that pressing, but the reality is there are people all around us who need a ministry like this that can help individuals to overcome whatever addictive struggles they may have. It's not all about drugs and alcohol, as Colby mentioned. But there are all kinds of individuals who can benefit from Celebrate Recovery. One of the mistakes that we make sometimes is we think that this is all about drugs and alcohol. But actually, we ran a Celebrate Recovery ministry when we were in Pennsylvania. And one of the things that I loved about that ministry was that uh, it wasn't just one type of individual. Uh, They actually talk about hurts, habits, and hang-ups. There are some individuals who came who they could not identify a specific addiction, a habit that they had, but rather they were carrying around so much baggage from whatever hurt them previously during life. And sometimes it happens when you're a child and you carry that weight for years and you just need a place to unload and to begin to refresh your view. What happens so often is we begin to believe the lies that we've seen and heard, and it becomes a part of who we are, but it's not who we were created to be. We were created in the image of God, and sometimes we need a group like Celebrate Recovery to simply help us understand who God created us to be. Uh, One of the mistakes we make is thinking that Celebrate Recovery is about those people, the ones who have their addiction, the ones who they've made some really poor choices. Actually, I wish everybody in the church would participate in a Celebrate Recovery because what you'll discover is all of us have some kind of baggage that we're carrying. So just wanted to throw that out there. Please be in prayer for it. I think what uh, Colby has shared was fantastic this morning. I just want to encourage you, uh, when that time comes for us to have the kickoff event, which is January 4th, uh, we want everybody in the church in prayer for it. And if, if there's a need, whatever it might be, know that you are welcome and you would uh, likely benefit very much from being a part of that group. So anyways, it is great to be able to worship with you today and to be able to celebrate what God is doing. I do have a question. What do you come to church for? It's a question that I ask myself quite often. Years ago, I I spoke with a very successful pastor who shared that much of what made his church so successful was their ability to differentiate from other churches. He shared that many of his people passed multiple other churches on their way to his church every Sunday, and he needed to be clear on what made them stand out from all the other churches. So again, I ask the question, what makes you want to be a part of this church? I wonder sometimes what makes us stand out from other churches? What would make you or anybody else want to be a part of Trinity? The answer to that question is likely different for most people. Some like the size of the church or maybe even the location. Others will connect with the pastoral staff or perhaps the mission of the church or some of the ministries that you've even heard about this morning. And still others 
will find their connection through other people in the church, perhaps a family member or a friend. Perhaps for you it's the worship, the type of music that is sung, or maybe it is the message that is preached. But I ask the question of what makes this church unique from other churches, and as I do, one of the first thoughts that goes through my mind is you. You are one of the things that makes this church unique. We have such a unique group of people here, and honestly, I consider it a privilege to be considered your pastor. For example, this past week I spoke on tithing, and I shared some troubling statistics related to the Christian church as a whole. I told you that among those who tithe, which is supposedly 10%, that's actually, if you take the term tithe, it means a tenth. Christians give on average about two and a half percent. Well, I don't have the specific numbers for our church, but I assure you that this church is way above the national average. Now, could we be better? Yes, obviously, every church could be better. But I am so grateful to be a part of a church that actually understands the value of faithful stewardship knowing that it benefits the kingdom, knowing that God called us to do it, and knowing that God will even bless you as you choose to do it. So I simply begin today by saying thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness that has made ministry happen here in this church. But stewardship is about more than just giving a tithe. I did a wedding a couple of weeks back. In that wedding, I stated that 53% of all marriages now end in divorce. Unfortunately, that is an accurate statistic. Those numbers have steadily risen over the past several decades. Well, my first thought when I hear statistics like that is to ask what went wrong. How did we get to the point that a majority of families are ending up in divorce? Why would so many couples go in this direction? Again, using statistics, the answer is not difficult to find. The number one reason given for couples going through divorce is money, with communication actually being a close second. 54% of divorcing couples identify money as the biggest problem within their marriage. In fact, it has been said that we ought to go ahead and change the marriage vows from until death do us part to until debt do us part. Well, financial problems are not unique to any one segment of society. Sure, the problems may be slightly different depending on what you're going through in your life today, but financial problems occur for all kinds of people. And I regret to inform you that those who are in the church are not exempt from this. And the root of the problem is simply more money going out than what you have coming in. It's kind of a common sense thing, but it's something that we allow to happen quite often. According to Micah chapter 6, verse 8, a verse that we have read often and quoted here at the church, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And this is true in every aspect of our lives, and that does not exclude our finances. 
it matters how we handle our money. So I want you to hear this for just a moment. My goal today is not to bring you to a point of repentance, although if somehow this message brings you to that point, I will celebrate. Rather today, the hope is to help you look at your finances and see things the way God sees your finances. So in keeping with that verse, Micah 6.8, we need to, in regard to finances, act justly. That includes us paying our bills. That includes using our finances wisely, not spending just because we see something that we really want. It is acting justly, making wise decisions. It is also loving mercy. That means using your money for the good of others. It's generosity. When you see a need, you go out of the way to help with that need. It is allowing your finances to become a resource, a tool to actually show mercy to those who need it around you. Again, according to that verse, this includes us walking humbly with our God. And this issue of humility is really important when it comes to finances. We need to handle our money God's way, not our way, because our way is not really as good as we think it is. It is this last element of handling our finances with humility that I want to focus on this morning. I was reading this week from 2 Chronicles 7.14. It's probably a very familiar passage to most of us, but rarely do we apply it to our own financial situations. But I want you to think about what it says for just a moment. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. Now, I don't want to take this out of context. Actually, this verse goes on to really draw people to a heart of repentance and prayer. Those seeking the Lord with all of their hearts and truly when we surrender ourselves to him, confessing our sins, turning our back on that sin then God will show up and do great and mighty things. But I believe that this first portion of the verse speaks very heavily to where we are financially as well. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. Let me suggest that many of the financial woes that we experience today are driven by pride and arrogance. There's a sense that we deserve better than what we have. And therefore, we spend more than we have, living beyond our means. Maybe what needs to happen is we need to humble ourselves and pray. Sure, we may not have looked at this as a pride issue in the past, but as you think about it, the things that you want are the things often that you feel like you deserve. It is absolutely a pride issue. Poverty comes in many shapes and sizes. For example, one is unemployed, another works a full-time job, yet there are far too many mouths to feed. One has barely enough food to eat or perhaps not even a roof over his or her head. Another has a million-dollar home, yet they're in debt up to their eyeballs. The unfortunate reality is that each of us has probably felt the weight of financial stress at some point or another. In fact, it's pretty typical within our society. As a matter of fact, I, I found a picture online that I think illustrates the condition of most Americans when it comes to finances. 
We've got so much stuff which has led to so much debt, and we end up being the donkey trying to keep everything moving only to realize that we're not going anywhere. We are out of control. And according to the most recent polling data, 91% of Americans live in debt. It doesn't include a home mortgage, that kind of debt. The primary culprit is credit card debt with an average interest rate of nearly 13%, which is really high when you consider the fact that the interest rates have plummeted over the last couple of years. With an average balance of $15,799 in debt. This doesn't even include things like school loans, medical bills, and vehicle payments. The unfortunate reality is that most Americans will pay about the same amount or more each month on interest as what we will pay for our living expenses. So how do we fix this problem of poor money management? There are countless tools available, and if you were to go to any library today, you're almost guaranteed to find an entire section just on personal finance. And I encourage you to make good use of every one of these resources. But I think it's also worth noting that God's Word has a recipe for financial success. So I want to look at it for a little bit. I want to begin with a passage that it's not actually listed there in your notes this morning, but it's found in Luke chapter 16. And then we'll move around a little bit from there, and uh, we'll spend a lot of time in Proverbs today. First, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a story of a money manager who is about to lose his job. Realizing what's about to take place, he comes up with a plan. Now, it's a dishonest plan, and he's not the guy that any of us would want working for us. He apparently worked for a man who had a great deal of resources. In fact, apparently others appear to have owed him a great deal of money. We read again in Luke 16, beginning in verses, verse 3, we read these words. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. He then proceeds to forgive debts on other people. Well, at least partially. What he's doing is trying to gain the favor of these debtors so that when he loses his job, which apparently was very imminent, they will be more likely to hire him because they'll appreciate what he did for them. I get what he's doing here, but it's dishonest. What's intriguing to me about this story is that as Jesus tells the story, we see that the man is being commended, not condemned. Now, he's not commended for his dishonesty, but rather he is commended for being shrewd. And there is a big difference between the two. A simple yet accurate definition for shrewd is to make the most of the resources which you currently have. In this guy's case, he had relationships and authority which he was able to use for his own future provisions. 
we must all do the same, without the dishonesty, of course. But we need to make good use of the resources which God has placed in our care. As we become shrewd, making the best of what we have, we need to do four things. The first is this. We must put physical possessions in their proper perspective. The first part of this is what we talked about last week. We need to begin by realizing that everything we have truly belongs to God. And they're really just on loan to us. Remember that everything belonged to him before it belonged to you. I talked about this a little bit last week. Everything you have has been made possible by God. You say, no, pastor, I work really hard. I've worked hard all my life. I've got great abilities and talents. Who gave you those abilities and talents? Who gave you the opportunities to use those abilities and talents? Everything you have has been made possible by God himself. In this context, we find an interesting idea. If everything truly belongs to God, then every spending decision is also a spiritual decision. We are spending God's money. So what are you buying with God's money? The second part of this is realizing that We can be content regardless of how much or how little we have. But this is where humility comes into play. In 1 Timothy 6, 8, Paul declares that if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Can you say the same thing? Proverbs 15, verse 16 and 17 declares, Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with hatred. If all you had was God and just enough to provide for your basic financial needs... Would you be okay with it? Don't answer the question because I know hopefully we're all going to say, yeah, I, I would. According to Ron Blue in his book, Master Your Money, he says that most Americans, though they may say that, they will not be telling the truth. He suggests that most Americans will not see themselves as successful unless they have enough money to do what they want when they want it. Let me just state that within this mindset is a problem. You see, in this case, our satisfaction is found in financial resources or in the material possessions that we can obtain with our financial resources. But our satisfaction ought to always be found in Jesus Christ above all else. See, the problem is we get things out of order. We're so focused on the gift as opposed to focusing on the giver himself. And what needs to happen is our perspective needs to change. And by the way, I get it. For many of us, we see financial prosperity as evidence of God's blessing. We assume that if we are wealthy, then God must really love us. If we're broke, then God must really be angry with us. But the truth is, money is nothing more than a tool. It is a tool that we can use to accomplish great things. And it is a tool that God can use to teach us and to test us, just like we talked about last week. 
Second point today is that we must recognize the difference between our wants and needs. According to Proverbs 21:17, the love of pleasure and all kinds of materialism never leads to wealth. A simple application of this is that when you really want something and in your mind you allow it to become a need, you will spend almost whatever you have for the sake of getting it. Want spending shows up in various ways. One way is what's called impulse buying. And by the way, marketers are very good at product placement that is intended to sucker us into this. I remember as a high school student, I worked at a drugstore. It's called People's Drug. And one of the things that we did regularly was we moved products around the store so that people would be forced to walk through the store to find the product that they were looking for. The idea was that the longer they were in the store, they were more likely to buy something else. It's called impulse buying. You see something, you think, oh, you know, I do need one of those. You didn't need it before you walked in, but I do need it now. And the next thing you know, now you're spending that money on that thing that suddenly you need. They're also good at promoting their item as if it's something that everybody else already has and something that we desperately need. Let me suggest a great exercise in determining the difference between your wants and needs. First, make a list of all the things that you might purchase over the next year. Of that list, which items can you live without? You just identified your wants and needs. There's a difference between a want and a need. And don't get me wrong, I'm not one of those who would tell you that you ought to never spend money on any wants at all. You should never get a vacation. You should never be able to eat a good meal. God bless you with resources and enjoy. I encourage you to enjoy those resources. But don't get confused about what a, a need and a want are. They're two very different things. In fact, if you are to properly use the resources that God gives you, then you must manage your resources wisely. Proverbs 21, verse 23 to 27 says, Be sure to know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds, for riches do not endure forever, and a crown is not secure for all generations. When the hay is removed and new growth appears and the grass from the hills is gathered in, the lambs will provide you with clothing and the goats with the price of a field. You will have plenty of goat's milk to feed your family and to nourish your female servants. I want to go back to the second thing that I saw in this particular passage I just read. For riches do not endure forever. That means they may last you for a time, and you may experience a great time of prosperity, but you can't take those things with you when you die. In fact, the reality is things change so quickly in our society, you may not even take them into the next decade. Just because you prosper today does not mean that you will prosper tomorrow. So be wise about the way you manage the money that you have today. Basically, this passage is saying that we need to evaluate what we have and then plan ahead. Proverbs 10.4 takes it a little further, declaring that if you are lazy, then you won't be able to accomplish those plans. 
That being said, let's look at what a plan looks like. You see, there are a lot of people who they believe, you know, I'm going to do better with my finances. I'm going to make sure that, that I, I have money in the bank. I'm going to make sure that a year from now I'm going to be in good shape. But the truth is you can have really good intentions but never have a plan. Yesterday marked 13 weeks. I recognized 13 weeks ago how much I needed to change something about myself. I actually um, uh, was looking in the mirror. Actually, it wasn't in the mirror. I was at the, uh, I was with my mom and she had her iPad up and she's talking with her sisters at like a Zoom call. And I walked around behind her. We were at a pool and I walked around behind her and my shirt was off. And I looked and I could see myself on that screen and I thought, man, that guy's fat. <laughs> and I decided at that point that something needed to change. So what I did is on the first day, I decided I'm going to do one sit-up, one push-up, and one curl with a 25-pound dumbbell on each arm. On day two, I did two. Yesterday, I did 91 of each of those. The thing is, my goal is to get to 365. I ought to be really healthy by the time that I reach that point. But the point is, it never would have happened unless there was a plan to actually change the current situation. Just saying I'm going to be different doesn't make me different. And the same thing applies to us financially. Just saying that I'm going to be better with my money without having a plan to do that does not make your financial situation any better. You're still in the same situation. In fact, what will happen is a few weeks or months down the road, you're looking with even greater regret thinking, I, I should have done it then. And here I am, I'm in the same place or maybe even worse. We need to put a plan together to change our financial situation. First thing I challenge you to do, by the way, I studied to be an accountant when I was in college. That was actually what I came here for. Uh, the Lord called me to be a pastor instead, but because of that, uh, I do at least have some knowledge about money stuff. We need to evaluate our present situation in order to put a plan in place. You need to know what you have to work with based on your job, on your work ethic, your family situation, all sorts of other things. What are realistic expectations for you and your family? For some of us, this will cause us to identify certain debts. Some of us have gotten ourselves so deep into debt that getting out quickly is not going to happen. Others have done well with what you have, and the result is that you're trying to figure out how you can bless others more effectively with what you have. But we have to start with a financial self-evaluation. And remember that this is a spiritual act. Remember I said it earlier, every spending decision is actually a spiritual decision because it's God's money. We're determining the best use of resources as God has entrusted them to us. The second thing we must do is decide where you want to be. This is important. Establish your financial goals. Do you want to retire in 10 years? Do you want to be debt-free in five years? Do you want to have a fully funded college fund in 10 years? Then you need to start by making a budget. 
John Maxwell says that a budget is telling your money what to do instead of wondering where it went. Putting a budget together is simple math. Ron Blue says that a proper budget is one that increases your cash flow margin. It's a phrase that simply means you got more money coming in than you have coming out. Here's the problem with that. I mentioned earlier that 91% of Americans live in debt, primarily credit card debt. That means that what we've been doing is the exact opposite of this. We've spent more than we had coming in, and it doesn't work for too long. I'm not going to go through the entire process of how to make a budget. I will tell you that Kadar has made himself available in the past, and I would make myself available to you as well. If you want help making a budget, then I would love to be able to talk to you. Kadar, as our treasurer, would love to be able to talk to you. Not so we can make sure the church gets their cut, but because I believe very firmly that God desires to bless his people, but if we're not good stewards with what he's blessed us with already, you should not expect him to continue to bless. The last thing that I will point out today, we've all made mistakes. We've all ended up looking back at times wondering where we went wrong. In those moments, we need to learn from our mistakes. Genesis tells the story of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham is highlighted as a wonderful man of God, yet he was very slow to learn from his mistakes. In Genesis 12, as Abraham and Sarah approached Egypt, Abraham comes with a plan that involves a half-truth about their relationship. For sure, she is his half-sister, but she is also his wife. Their culture was an odd culture. If an individual in Egypt saw a foreigner walking down the street, and she was a beautiful woman, and she had a husband... He could actually arrange for the husband to be killed without penalty because he's just a foreigner. And then he could take the wife to be his own wife. Now, as crazy as that sounds, they actually had another caveat. If a beautiful woman were to come to town, again, she is a foreigner, she's an outsider. If the individual, if the young lady had a brother with her, or a father, the individual in Egypt could go to that brother or father. He couldn't kill them for the right to the, the young lady, but they could ask for her hand in marriage. And then the father or the brother had the right to basically name his price. It's as if she was nothing more than a piece of property. Look at it from this perspective. Abraham knows that if he goes to Egypt, his wife is beautiful. And if people know that he is her husband, then they'll kill him in order to get Sarah. He says, tell you what, I want you to tell everybody that I'm your brother, which was a half-truth. He is the half-brother, but he's also her husband. He says, I want you to tell everybody that I'm your brother, and I'll just name a price so high that nobody can ever pay it. But then what happens when Pharaoh decides he once your sister, and it creates a problem. Eventually, Sarah is returned. God actually curses Egypt as a result of this, and Sarah is returned 
basically to Abraham. Can you imagine that conversation afterwards? Can you imagine Sarah when she's being sent back to Abraham? She walks up and she says, I told you this wouldn't work. And you know that it had to happen at some point or another. I told you this was a bad idea. You would think that they would learn from their mistakes. I told you that's Genesis 12, Genesis 20. Guess what happens? It happens again, not in Egypt, but in another city. And what happens is the exact same thing. I want you to tell everybody that I'm your brother. And the next thing you know, they find themselves in the exact same position. We need to learn from our mistakes. By the way, can you imagine the second conversation? I still told you that it wasn't going to work. We need to learn from our mistakes. Many of us have made poor financial decisions, doing things our way, wanting to do things in a way that satisfies us. Maybe what needs to happen is we need to stop doing things the same way we've always done it and expect a different result. It's time for us to change. The way we handle our, our finances matters. I was talking with uh, one of the ministers who has mentored me for years, and we were talking about the fact that when the body of Christ truly experiences transformation, he said their finances also are transformed. We've been praying for revival. We've been praying that God would change people's hearts, and I do believe that God desires to do that. It's not just some mystical thing where suddenly you feel encouraged and the Spirit of God is upon you. It affects your actions. It affects even the way you handle your financial resources. So I want to challenge you today to allow your financial resources to truly honor God. Make a budget. Live within it. Be generous. That's what we talked about last week. Be faithful in tithing. That's a part of it. But when you become a good steward, the rest of the world will notice that there's something different about you. If you would bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, well, we know that you have been very, very generous to us. Thank you for all that you've given. Thank you for the grace that you've shown, because many times we haven't been good stewards with it. We've spent on things that we wanted, pretending that it was a need. We've spent with the idea that somehow we deserve what we're getting. Lord, the truth is, you've already given us far more than we could ever deserve. Father, I pray today that you would give us wisdom and humility and discipline with regard to our finances. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be good stewards, to use these resources to make a difference for you and your kingdom, investing in your money for your work. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful. And then I pray, Lord, that as we are faithful, that we would see your continued hand of blessing. Thank you again for what you've already shown to us. Help us not to take it for granted. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So today is a different kind of day because I didn't, it's not a repent message, but it is a day where I want to challenge you to be transformed. Your finances matter to God. Make sure you honor the Lord with them. It is such a blessing to have each of you with us today. Uh, go in peace. Uh, if you would, there's, since I'm talking about money, there are those collecting offering at the doors as you leave. Thank you.